I'm about to do something I've been wanting to do for quite a long time. I'm going to introduce you to somebody who I've been wanting to introduce you to, and I want you to hear what he has to say because this is really important. And in this case, it has to do with something that we like to talk about all the time. You know, we like to talk about what we say are Latino truths. In fact, what we always say is, you know what, we might as well because nobody else is doing it, right? But occasionally, and I always tell you, look, what do I always say? I always say, you're not going to get this on CNN. You're not going to get this on MSNBC. You're not going to get this on Fox because, you know, God bless their souls. They just don't know these things. So instead, they do this, you know, pat on the head. Oh, we like those Latinos. They're very nice. Keep watching. But they really don't get us. They can't explain us. They don't understand who we are, how many we are, et cetera, et cetera. This is important. And that's why I know we're building this community because we have these conversations all the time. And we thank you for being there. Those of you who are jumping on board and those of you who maybe have questions about what we're doing, we welcome that too. So here, here's, here's who I want to introduce you to. I want to introduce you to him before I even go to him live. Don't take him live yet because I want to see the body of his work, as we like to say. You know, I'm, I'm going to show you that this guy has a real track record. So he takes on, interestingly enough, Tucker Carlson. Tucker Carlson's an interesting guy. Look, you guys know Tucker invites me to a show. I go on there from time to time. There's a lot of stuff that Tucker does, which I think is fine. And he actually challenges some of the, some of the conventional wisdoms that we often accept that we shouldn't accept, right? But when it comes to Latinos, he's dead wrong. I mean, just dead wrong. Doesn't get it. Right. So Tucker recently went out and said that uh, Latinos in particular are taking away from America and they're taking too many jobs from Americas and they're hurting the American economy. And none other, none other than Jenk Uger, who you're about to meet, says, no, Tucker, you're wrong. Play it. Now, in terms of wages, Tucker is absolutely right that wages have been stagnant, and they have been stagnant since about 1978. Productivity has not. The American worker has been wonderfully productive. It has gone up by over 200% since that time. But if you're looking to see who took your wages, don't look down, look up. The guy just last thought here, the guy who walked in at, and crossed the border without a penny to his name did not somehow rig the rules. No, the person who rigged the rules are the ones that are paying the politicians. Campaign contributions are unadulterated bribery. They're absolutely positively bribery, and they are done to maintain power for the economic elite. And that is what's keeping your wages stagnant. That is so important on two ways, by the way. First of all, the fact that people want to say that this guy coming over the border to the United States who's hungry, and by the way, according to statistics, he works 44 hours a week. The rest of Americans work maybe 32 or 33. On average, he tends to have two jobs while the rest of us barely have one. That guy? is the guy who's actually hurting the economy of the United States. And that's the point. We got two more cuts that we're going to play, but I want to get right to them. Uh, uh, you know, Jenk Uger, good enough to join us now. We've known each other for many, many years. We've worked together in, you know, uh, kind of the same business at, at different ends at times. But it's, uh, it's great to have you, Jenk. Thanks for uh, joining us. Oh, no problem. Thanks for having me. Um, yeah, there, there's a 
tons and tons and tons of stuff that you and I agree on and have had similar experiences with and including that story you just played. Here's here's Tucker responding somewhat to what you said. And I want everybody to listen to these words because they're 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 powerful and and this these are the kinds of conversations we should be having in this country. Here's Tucker. I would only say and it's a more complicated question than just this, but this is a huge part of it. It's one of the reasons that Wages have stalled, and for some categories of people, high school educated people, they've gone down over the last 30 years. Like, this is a real thing, and the last thing I'll say is you, if you bring this up, everyone wants to make a race question out of it, you don't like them because they're different, oh please. There's nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with what kind of country you want to live in. Do you want to live in a country where people with very little economic power have even less? Then open the doors, and that's what you'll get. The point he seems to be making there is that when Latinos come to this country, America becomes worse. That when Latinos come to America, America becomes worse for it. Finally, one more cut, and then you'll hear from him live. Here is how Jenk responded. First of all, uh, this is a country, and this is not a cliche, it's true, it's a t- country made of immigrants. Uh, I'm an immigrant, I, uh, and I came in in a legal way. So and and I and I want to support that and I want and I think that that's not a matter of doing me a favor. It's not a matter of doing someone from Honduras a favor. It's a matter of what is best for the country. And I think immigrants have built this country, whether they were Italian, Irish, Chinese, Jewish, and Mexican. Yes, they have built this country, and and so I think that is a great value to the country. In fact, there is demagoguery about how immigrants keep taking from us. But the reality is, and every study shows this. Since a lot of the undocumented immigrants pay into Social Security and Medicare as part of the payroll taxes, but never get it out, they actually put more taxes into the system than they take out of the system. And, and so if we're talking about what is the, the correct uh, policy to have, so there is a discussion about reform in, in uh, Congress that's gone nowhere, but the idea there was to take indentured servitude and double it. And that if you work here for 14 years, if you're undocumented, you could have a pathway to citizenship. Now, the right wing said, that's too lenient. I don't know if they want three times indentured servitude. I don't know. But my answer is, look, can we at least go back to indentured servitude? So for seven years, they work and, and they pay their dues. Have they not done enough and shown enough to become US citizens? That means they are adding to our country. They are not taking away from our country. So that is a proposal that I believe in and that I will fight for. And, and immigrants are, are net positive in almost every way imaginable, and, and also demagoguery on the issue of criminality. The reality is native-born Americans, unfortunately, commit crime at over twice the rate of undocumented immigrants. And for those of us here on uh, Rick Sanchez News and Agua Media, that was like a mic drop moment. And we really appreciate, Jenk, that uh, you stood up. Here's the question, though. You you seem to have some of that information at your fingertips. Most of us here often talk about these things. And I think most people who are smart and actually look at the metrics can come to the conclusions that Latino immigrants in particular, since only because we're the biggest number, um, are a net gain. They're a net gain economically and in so many ways for this country. Why is that so hard for anyone else? Obviously, Fox News doesn't want to believe it because that's part of their message. But let's not even give CNN and MSNBC and those guys a pass because they may know it, 
but they certainly never talk about it. Yeah. So, Rick, this happens in almost every country, right? So you need folks who are willing to do hard work uh, that a lot of the uh, people that are uh, born in that country don't want to do. So that's just a fact. So I'll give you an example from here and I'll give you an example from somewhere else. So in several southern towns uh, over the last 20 years or so, they tried experiments where they did raids on factories and warehouses where there were undocumented immigrants and they kicked them all out. They Mm -hmm. actually did it. Right. They Mm -hmm. always bluff about doing it, but they did it in a couple of instances. Um, And I believe it was like Georgia and Mississippi, if I remember right. Right. And uh, and every time they did it, it was an epic disaster. It totally pulverized the local economy. It went so poorly that they just brought back not legal immigrants. They brought back undocumented immigrants and surrendered. Uh, so the right wing is full of crap. It, it they they absolutely need these workers. Uh, there's and by the way, anytime they say okay, all right, picking lettuce, Florida. California, Kansas, wherever it is, okay? They offer $14, $16, $18. Nobody's doing it. (laughs) Or people will come and they'll do it for a day or they'll do it for two days and go, oh my God, that is so hard. And they run for the hills. So, but it's true of every society in every country. So in Germany, for example, the immigrant workers are Turks. And so there's a reason why the Germans bring them in because the Germans won't do certain jobs as the, the hungrier Turkish immigrants will do, right? And then, but what happens every time? There's always a, a backlash uh, for two reasons. One is race, let's be honest. Right. So since they look different, whether it's Turks in Germany or Latinos here, there's a, a natural human, unfortunately, pushback uh, that, that is racial in nature. But Rick, I think the bigger issue is most countries have an economic elite. And they're the ones that I, as I explained in that debate with Tucker Carlson, uh, rigged the system. And understandably so, they have power, they have wealth, and they want more power and more wealth. So they literally set the rules. How do they set the rules? Well, through politics. Mm-hmm. And so in our case, uh, in America, you're allowed to just bribe politicians, just flat out bribe them. It's called campaign contributions. Yeah, it's legal. You can give them millions. The yeah. one guy just gave $1.6 billion. Okay. Mm-hmm. So... They rigged the rules. And, and I should add what you just said, that $1.6 billion went to picking Supreme Court justices, and they did very well with it because they all went right into the Federalist Society, which is used it for that purpose, which I thought was and fascinating. Yeah, and, yeah. and mission accomplished. Yeah. Women across the country, you lost your right to choose. Why? Because of the incredibly powerful, wealthy men in this country who didn't want you to have that right and literally spent billions to make sure that they robbed you of that right. That's how it works. That's how power works. But the last part of it, Rick, is that those folks don't want anyone to know that they're in charge. So they need a scapegoat. They need Latinos in America. They need Turks in Germany. And what helps them is, oh, my God, they look different. That's perfect. We could rile up the masses to hate them and lose focus on the people who are actually rigging the system which is us. Here's the and, next part of that question, though, that I asked you. Why? I get that from Fox News. I, I get that from AON or OAN or whatever the hell they're called, or any one of these new uh, networks coming up that want to do nothing but rile up and make angry white people. 
because that's what they are. I, I want to get older white guys and make them despise people who don't look like them. And, and, and as a business model, I understand that. You understand that, right? But what excuse do we have when I turn on this, where I used to work, CNN, where you, you used to work, MSNBC, and the guys who are supposed to know these things the way you explain them to Tucker, Chris Hayes, uh, Rachel Maddow, I could go down the list, uh, Don Lemon, Anderson Cooper, they don't know these facts. They don't defend these facts. Why is that, Jack? Yeah, there's an excellent explanation. and. If you want to solve politics, it's actually exceedingly easy. Just follow the money, period. It's so, so easy. So in the case of the cable news guys, there's a, several different layers to it. So first of all, are they evil and they know all these things and they twirl their mustache? No, no. Like Don Lemon's a perfectly good guy. Uh, met him on a couple of occasions. Just a really nice person yeah, yeah, in, in yeah. real life. But does Don know these uh, phenomena? He doesn't even know, to be honest. He has no idea. <laughs> And uh, now Chris Hayes and Rachel Maddow do know. So even though I agree with them on a more regular basis, and I think Chris is probably the smartest guy in cable news, mm -hmm. in a sense, they're more culpable because they know and they don't talk about it. And so what's the phenomenon I'm talking about? First of all, you got money in politics. If you can't figure out that politicians might be influenced by the millions of dollars they got in campaign contributions, you're either a blithering idiot or obviously <laughs> dishonest. Okay, right. obviously, obviously, there's not a single actual human being who says, oh, Ted Cruz took $13 million from Robert Mercer, who runs a hedge fund. I bet that didn't influence him at all. Yeah, right. There's not one <laughs> rational person who thinks that. But yet, magically, everyone on TV says that's the case. Yeah. Well, isn't that a stunning, implicit lie that they all agree to? Why? So there's many reasons, but the number one reason is you they spend nowadays between six to ten billion dollars per election cycle. Where does most of that money go? Television, mm. and almost all of it goes to media. Mm. So, if you tell people that the politicians should not raise billions of dollars and that they're dishonest, well, those same politicians might not advertise on your program. To the tune of billions of dollars. Hmm. So now people, I've told a reporter that several, I've told many reporters that I remember one reporter said, well, Jane, that sounds kind of conspiratorial. I'm like, wait, let me get this right. So you think it's a conspiracy that multi-billion dollar corporations would like to keep their top line revenue humming along and would like to make a profit. You think that's a conspiracy? Well, <laughs> I got great news for you. You're going to be the best investigative reporter in America because that's what every company's up to. You'll get to bust open those conspiracies. Of course, it's for the money. Do you think, based on interlocking, where people who sit on the board of, let's suppose, Time Warner when it ran uh, CNN or any, or, uh, uh, the cable company that uh, runs, uh, um, what is it, uh, ABC, or, or Disney that runs ABC. Any one of these large corporations that owns media outlets, but also has people on its board who are like, let's suppose, sit on the board of Raytheon or sit on the board of some tech company. Does that filter through there? And how does it get to the Rachel Maddows of the world? Yeah, so it ranges from very subtle to, uh, you know, uh, clubbing you over the head. 
And, uh, and I've had uh, most of that happen to me, yeah. right, in, in different ways. So the subtle one is the group think uh, that we don't do that type of thing around here, mm-hmm. okay? That's actually the most important, the most pervasive, and the one that has the biggest impact. But where does it come from? So I'll give you a quick example. So uh, back in the day, MSNBC is owned by GE. Mm-hmm. Uh, GE's top profits actually do not come from entertainment or light bulbs. Uh, they were they're a defense contractor. They make at bombs. The time, yeah. At the time, most of their revenue, most of their profits came from become from being a defense contractor. Mm-hmm. MSNBC, in a sense, was their marketing arm. And so, when we were about to start the Iraq War, uh, they literally fired everyone who was against the Iraq War. So Phil Donahue was rated number one uh, on their network. They fired him anyway. Later, a memo leaked saying. We had to get him off our air because he wasn't for the war. Jesse Ventura got a $2 million deal. When they found out he's against the Iraq war, they told him to sit at home and they never put him on air. But the most interesting one was Ashley Banfield. At the time, she was a rising star, but she gave a speech against the Iraq war in Kansas. Yeah. And Rick, they didn't fire her. This is what's really interesting. This is what groupthink comes out of. They took her off the air, wouldn't let her out of our contract meaning they're still paying her, but they do not want her anti-war message on anyone else's air, okay? And that not only did they take her off air, they moved her office into a closet. And so when they move Ashley Banfield, their rising star, into a closet because she gave an anti-war speech, everyone in the building gets the memo. Shut up about the war. Be pro-war. Let's go cheerlead for death and destruction, because that's where the parent company makes money. Yep. So you don't you don't have to write the memo. The closet is the memo. Even though it was all based on a lie. And I remember at the time, MSNBC had just hired two people. One of them was Rick Sanchez, a younger, probably dumber version, and a young man named Lester Holt. They got me from Miami. They got Lester Holt from Chicago. And he and I, one day, while we were getting ready to do our shows, went in the back as we often did and had a conversation. And I remember Lester looking at me and said, this is all such bullshit. Do you feel the same pressure I do? And I said, yeah. He said, we're not really telling the truth about what's going on and they're not letting us cover this war and they're not letting us put people on the air who want to criticize this war. And I said, yeah, that's right, Lester. And I feel very uncomfortable about it as well. And I remember having that deep down conversation and then we both to a fault, and I admit to it, went out and continued doing our jobs because I had kids and so did he. And we weren't ready to go on the air and really be as highly critical as we should have been. And if I look back on it now, I wish I had been. But uh, I got another crack at the, uh, another bite at the apple though when I went to uh, CNN. And, and there maybe I was able to maybe do some of the things that I always wanted to do. But it's interesting because I wanna go now to your experience at MSNBC. You were a really hotshot anchor. You were the guy who was making a difference, saying the things nobody said over there. Because you were ethnic, I people wanted to believe you. Um, and then all of a sudden, you're gone, and in comes Al Sharpton, of all things. Tell me about your experience with that. Yeah. So first, just real quick, I did not know that story that you just said about you and Lester Holt, and that is amazing, and you're brave for saying it, and uh, and 
in case the audience doesn't know, when Rick went to CNN, he did do a segment on money and politics that we covered on the Young Turks and thought was incredibly brave. And I remember saying on the air, I'm worried about him because that's true and that can bother people. <laughs> and uh, the crew and, is laughing here. Oh, yeah, oh, yeah. What did he just say? Oh, God. Yeah. yeah. And uh, and by the way, a couple of weeks later, Rick was fired. Yeah. Um, so uh, they say it wasn't about that. Maybe. Maybe not. I don't know. Um, okay, but I do know my experience to your question, uh, Rick. Um, so with me, subtlety didn't work because um, I was going to report the truth. And uh, I remember my executive producer kept non-subtly reminding me, Jenk, remind, uh, he said, remember who the home team is. And I would always say to him, the audience is the home team. He's like, yeah, he didn't mean that. He meant the Democratic Party. Because at MSNBC, they were going to do establishment Democratic talking points. Mm -hmm. And I would drive them crazy by being a progressive that challenged the Democratic Party. I was challenging them from the left. Mm -hmm. But they didn't care if it was coming from the left or the right. They cared that you do not do that. You don't tell people about money and politics. Don't challenge the Democratic establishment. I remember one time I was on air and President Obama had given a speech about the Egyptian revolution. Uh, right after the speech, they come live to me, and I got a panel of generals and blah, blah, blah. And I say, look, I'm going to go to General XYZ here, uh, but then I'm going to come back and tell you, keep it real on what President Obama just said. Because, of course, he had pulled a classic Obama where he said that uh, Hosni Mubarak uh, was a wonderful ally and the revolution against him was a wonderful show of democracy. What? No, <laughs> you just said you agree with both sides. So, but when I said, I'm going to keep it real with, about what President Obama said, my producer immediately said in my earpiece, don't, don't do it. Okay. Because they knew I was going to criticize Obama and they didn't want that criticism. And Rick, I was so thick headed on what I perceived to be doing the right thing, which I still perceive to be doing the right thing, that they finally, Phil Griffin, the head of the network, pulled me in and said, Jenk, I was just in Washington. Uh, and uh, outsiders are cool, and they wear leather jackets and ride motorcycles, uh, but we're NBC. We're insiders. I mean, it's, it was a speech out of a movie. Wow. It was crazy. I couldn't believe it, because usually it's 10,000 times more subtle. He was, this is the club over the head, and he said, I was, I was in Justin Washington, and they're not happy with your tone, um, and I thought to myself, oh, there's no way I'm going to listen to that. But and their tone is a lie. Their tone is bullshit. Their 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 tone is to invite people on television who made all the wrong calls about the Iraq War and now ask them about a war that we're fighting now. Why would you do that, Jake? Right? Yep. So um, that that's so true. And uh, and by the way, Rick, this is an interesting part of the story. After. Uh, Phil Griffin told me to take it easy on Democrats and Obama and uh, and all the things that I was saying on air. Um, I went on air and went even harder after them. <laughs> and uh, and and so what happened is kind of an interesting lesson in American media. Uh, you remember in, in uh, television, we get ratings every quarter hour. Right. right. Mm -hmm. And everybody checks the quarter hours. Everybody's obsessed with it. Hey, how did this, uh, the B block do? How did the D block do the, Hey, sure. the D block was in the third quarter hour. You remember all that. So whenever I criticized Obama, I would go and look at the ratings the next day and you would see a dip 
you would see people leaving because I was making them uncomfortable by criticizing Obama. Mm -hmm. But what was super interesting is the next day, more people would come back. And because in the short term, they were uncomfortable. In the long term, I was gaining their trust. They're like, okay, I get it. At least this guy's honest, right? And, um, and I was pushing him from the left. And so by the end, I had the highest ratings they had ever had at six o'clock. And they moved me out and put Al Sharpton in anyway. Hmm. Now, you, now you want to hear the funny Al Sharpton part of the story? I would love to. Yeah. And by the way, in my case, they didn't fire me. They offered to double my salary and move me to the weekends. Only because they can. Right. Yeah. Because it, it, it really um, isn't about money with them, as you well know. But I would love to yeah. hear the rest. What happened after that? So they off, they, they, they offer to double your salary and move you to the weekends. And you say what? Yeah. So I said to Phil uh, when he made that offer. So, Phil, um, is there an issue with my ratings? I know what my ratings are. He knows what my ratings are. We can look it up together, right? And he's like, no, 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 you're doing great in the ratings. Um, is, is there an issue internally? Do I cause strife? Because Oberman was there and he caused enormous strife. And yes. That's a real issue in the workplace, right? And he's like, no, no, everybody likes you. You're uh, weirdly polite uh, off air. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I like that. <laughs> and so um, I said, Phil, if I go to the weekends, what would I have to do to get back into prime time? Now, the reason I asked him that question is because I know he's moving me out because of what I'm saying on air. Right. And for him, there's actually a lot of logic to it. If I fire the guy, it's going to cause a ruckus. If I offer to double his salary, but I move him to a time slot nobody's watching, then, hey, I've checked off all my boxes, except Al Sharpton, which I'm going to come back to. Um, and, uh, and so he didn't have an answer. Because nobody ever says, don't double my salary. Mm -hmm. Nobody ever talks back and says, oh, don't move me to weekends. They just take it and they move on, right? Um, and so he was unprepared. He sat there for the longest 45 seconds of anyone's life, not being able to give an answer to that question. Because you can't tell the guy who has the highest ratings that it's the ratings and, hey, just go to the weekend and get better ratings, Right. So, and you don't want to tell them, hey, I just want you to bow your head and kiss the ass of the powerful. So he sat there without an answer for all that time. And, uh, and I said, no, thanks. I don't want it. That's a shame um, because it speaks to an ideology as opposed to a truth. And that's not what MSNBC or CNN or Fox or any other news outlet is supposed to do with imperfections. Of course, we all have crazy ideas. We screw up coverage. I've made a gazillion mistakes throughout my career, but it wasn't because my intention was I'm going to try and convince you of something for monetary reasons or for ideological reasons. But unfortunately, as you just described it, that's exactly what's happening today. And the, and the consumers of news are the ones who get screwed because they, they don't know it. They just think, oh, these are the good guys and I'm going to watch them. They're not. Yeah. They're not. Yeah. So after that story, I talked to, an, after that happened, I talked to a couple of reporters about what had happened. And Brian Stelter at the time was at the New York Times. And he largely didn't believe me. He uh, went and uh, talked to MSNBC and there he needed way more access. I could only give him one story. MSNBC could give him dozens of stories. 
So he framed it from their point of view. I went on CNN and at the time the host of reliable sources was Howard Kurtz mm. and he was super skeptical yeah. because they all work for cable news. They mm. all work for mainstream media and they mm. all get paid by that. And so they don't want to out that. that that would get them in a lot of trouble. OK, but what was interesting is I went and talked to Wayne Barrett, who's a legendary New York time, uh, reporter in New York, mm. uh, worked for the Village Voice for a long time. Everyone in New York knows him. He was the dean of New York reporting for decades. Okay. And Wayne said, Oh, you poor schmuck. You don't know what's happening. I was like, no, why, why what's happening? He's like, okay, the story you tell me is the most credible story I've ever heard. Yeah. The, the, the part you explained is true. He said, but there's one other thing that you need to know about. And that's Al Sharpton. Uh, and he said, Comcast at that time had now bought MSNBC mm-hmm. and they had a significant racial and diversity issue within Comcast. Mm -hmm. And it was not clear whether their merger with uh, NBC was going to be approved. Mm -hmm. And Wayne told me uh, the person who stepped up to bat for them was Al Sharpton. Right. And and with one condition. Exactly. That he be given a show. Yeah. And lo and behold, uh, the person who replaced me was Al Sharpton. And what Wayne said was, Look, they were always going to give him a show. Now that you told me the other half of the story about how you were causing trouble for people in D.C., Phil must have thought, oh, this is perfect. I'll right? move Jenkins weekends. I'll move out to 6 o'clock. I check off all the boxes. My new bosses are thrilled with me. Mission accomplished. You and know, it's exactly funny you that. say that because at the time, um, I was talking to Comcast because they had this MOU in the works, which was famous at the time, this memorandum of understanding, where they were trying to create a space for minorities. And they were going to actually give one of their channels to a minority group. So myself, along with Alex Fernandez, uh, no, Alex uh, uh, Rodriguez, the baseball player, and I, because he's a Miami guy who you know, and we were pitching a network. So was uh, uh, so was at the time an, an, another group that I that I think was headed by Al Sharpton or he was part of that group. So we got in tight with these with this Comcast group and we're going back and forth with them. And one day they called us and said everything is going to go towards Sharpton. They feel like the Sharpton deal is really important. Not only are they going to give him that space in that MOU. They also did give another one to a Latino. It wasn't our group. It was the director, uh, Robert Rodriguez. But they gave Sharpton the net, the channel, and then they also gave him his own show on MSNBC. And the guy described to me that they felt they needed to do that to make the NBC merger go through. Otherwise, it wouldn't have gone through. So that that was explained to me. So what you just told me on in a, in kind of a back channel way, I just confirmed back to you based on my conversations at the time. So it's true. It's true. There was a yeah. plan to put him in your gig, Jenk. Yeah. No, Rick, we've lived interesting parallel lives uh, because I remember when they were giving away those channels. And I remember when Robert Rodriguez got it. And I remember when uh, the other folks got it. And it, so uh, you and I are are both on air, but in, in a lot of ways, we're also businessmen. And I'm also the, the founder and the CEO of the Young Turks. And we were in those conversations as well. Um, but the problem with TYT is that anytime anybody finds out that we actually tell the truth about 
all the things that happen in the world, the real world, where things are run on profit and revenue and money and dollars, uh, people get uncomfortable. Um, the folks at the top get uncomfortable. What so, made you like uh, this? What? Why you? You could have really done very well. Not that you're not doing well, because you're one of the most successful independent media entrepreneurs in the United States, and people will write about you and study what you did for years to come. But you, you, you could have had a pretty cushy situation if you had just decided, you know what? Sure, I'll just go over there and read the teleprompter and be their guy, whoever them is in that moment. But you decided to have a different path. Why? What is it about you that makes you like that, Jack? Um, simple answer. I can't help myself. Um, <laughs> so, I, it, look, I'm an immigrant, so I've had my immigrant family and friends constantly tell me, you're crazy. Stop doing what you're doing. Yeah. So, so I, I went to Wharton Business School. I went to Columbia Law School, came out, got a great corporate uh, law job, all the immigrant, uh, you know. In D.C. Uh, you worked as a lawyer in Washington, D.C. I yeah. Mean, you, you were at the top, baby. Yeah, I, I was two blocks from the White House at an office that overlooked a park. I mean, it's just perfect, right? And and all the Turkish parents are proud of me. It's all good. And I go, yeah, no, I'm going to uh, put that aside and I'm going to become a radio talk show host. They're like, no! <laughs> um, oh my and God, then that's I, my life. Yeah, and then I make it in radio and we get a finally get this two, a quarter of a million dollar contract from Sirius Satellite Radio when we're starving and we're thrilled. And But they attach a condition that you can't do online video. I'm like, but online video is the future. So I can't say yes to this. So I turned that down. Everyone's like, no. <laughs> I, I finally get on MSNBC. And now we're talking, you know, finally we're at seven figures, right? Uh, and, uh, and because of the situation I just told you, I turned it, that down. And, and it's because, Rick, wh what are we doing? Like, yeah, I could have yeah. stayed a lawyer and made a lot of money. I could have stayed a radio host and made a good money. I could have stayed a TV host and made a ton of money, right? But what are we doing with our lives? Yeah, are, yeah. We, are we just working for someone else and telling their lies? I don't find that to be an interesting life. Um, I would rather tell the truth, suffer for the 20 years that we've gone through all these, uh, you know, travails uh, and ups and downs, but at the end, be my own man. But you fight for the little guy. I mean, the sense I get from you and when I watch TYT, which I do regularly, I get a sense that if there's a constant stream there, it's that when someone who is afflicted uh, is suffering, we're going to either tell their story or try and under or, or, or trying to create an understanding so in the future others don't have to follow that the same way. And as for those folks who are afflicting them, the powerful you're going to tell it like it is and you're going to nail them and, 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 and you're going to uh, basically, uh, you know, put it out there, which is yeah. something you don't see a lot in media. So th that's how I see TYT for the most part, you guys screw up too, but you know, for the most part. right? <laughs> so of course, of course we do. And by the way, you can tell if, so like a lot of times the right wing will beat up uh, someone, even in mainstream media and say, oh, look, at they got that story wrong. No, the difference isn't whether you get a story wrong or not. The difference right. is whether you admit it, uh, whether you're honest with your audience and you say, oh, that was right and that was wrong, as opposed to, no, I'm just going to keep lying to them and never admit uh, things that are true. But but in, in terms of fighting for the little guy, 
Rick, I was a big kid when I was growing up. I had that advantage. It gives you confidence, right? I was strong. And honestly, I, I wanted to fight. Um, but I wanted to do it in a productive way. So I became a middle linebacker in football and took out my aggressions the right way. Uh, but also, I, I loved fighting bullies because they're the ones who always wanted to fight. And they were always picking on little kids. And I, I thought, perfect. I want to fight. You want to fight. I'll stand up for the little kid and, uh, and I'll meet you in the back uh, of the school and see how it turns out for you. And so I just kept that going. And, um, and, it, and, and by the way, Rick, here's a se- selfish part of it. It feels great. Yeah. It feels great when you stand up for the little guy and you fight a hard fight and you win. Nothing feels bad. Those guys used to exist in TV news, by the way. Um, when I grew up, in the 1970s, watching coverage, for example, of Watergate, Vietnam War, we can go through different stories that were covered by members of the media who I looked up to, who challenged institutions and said, no, that's wrong. Those guys, it's almost like they don't even exist out there anymore. Interestingly enough, those guys who I used to watch challenged the institutions and challenged, well, let's just say it, the bullshit. Um, they made maybe a couple hundred thousand dollars a year and they had a regular house and lived in a normal life. Today, these guys who are not uh, doing that, who are not fighting for the little guy, they make $20 million a year as a salary, as an anchor, as at a network. So I'm wondering, is it because they're not willing to fight for the little guy or is it because they're being paid off and they're basically sold their soul as a result? So I think that the mythology and the group think is so thick that they believe it themselves. Hmm. So, for example, Anderson Cooper is the heir to the Vanderbilt fortune. Uh, Tucker Carlson, by the way, is the heir to the Swanson fortune. Yeah. Um, and so growing up as heirs to giant fortunes, they just grow up with a certain mindset. So you don't have to tell Anderson Cooper to that the status quo is great and the corporate America is great and you should always support corporate positions, whether they're come from the democratic party or the Republican party. Mm. He already believes that it's a matter of pre-selection. They picked Anderson Cooper because Anderson Cooper agrees that everything should stay the same and the rich should stay on top. But Anderson doesn't know that he thinks that it's just who he is. Wow. He doesn't know that CNN picked him because he already thought that. Anderson he doesn't thinks, know that he thinks that. Listen to what you just said. Anderson yeah. doesn't know that he thinks that. Tucker probably doesn't know that he thinks that. That's just who they are. But the people who chose them knew that about them. Almost as if they know more about them than those two individuals know about themselves. Wow. Yeah, there's a lot of truth to that. Now, to your point about the earlier anchors who were legends, the current guys will tell you that Walter Cronkite and Edward R. Murrow were uh, legends. Mm-hmm. And, and then they will tell you that's because they were, that was the good old days when they did objective news. Is that right? Mm-hmm. And when you look at the history of it, you go, oh my God, that isn't true at all. Edward Murrow was famous for giving his opinions. His yeah. show was centered around his opinions. He didn't do straight news. He was famous for not doing straight news. And then you look at Walter Cronkite. What were the two things that everybody knows about Walter Cronkite? 
JFK and Vietnam War. Exactly. And what happened? JFK gets killed and Cronkite cries. Cries. Shows emotion, shows that he's human, shows passion, doesn't just robotically say, okay, JFK's died. I'm a news person. I'm objective. I don't care. Either way, I'm fine with it. No, he says, oh, that's terrible. And he weeps on air. And on Vietnam, what did he say? He said, this war is not working. How is that not an opinion? It was the biggest, most consequential opinion from a newsman in American history. Hmm. They've now turned that reality into the opposite. And they tell the Anderson Coopers and everyone else, don't ever dare give your opinion. Don't ever dare show passion. You must be objective and in favor of the status quo. But in favor of the status quo is not objective. It's taking right. a side. Right. And so that's how it got perverted. And by the way, why were Murrow and Cronkite so great? And why were they allowed to do that? It's all in the money, Rick, because back then TV had done a deal with the government that they would be able to get the airwaves, the public airwaves for free, but as a public service, they had to do news. Hmm. It was not supposed to be a profit center. And back then it was not a profit center. Right. So they did real news. But over time, that got lost and it got turned into a profit center. And once they got obsessed with profits, real news was gone. That's exactly what happened. What happens now with TYT? Are you um, what what uh, TYT has changed in many ways as technology has changed. You have been essentially the leader in adapting the uh, dissemination according to what was available, technologically speaking, for people. You always seem to take the other path. That's why you you were the first to start streaming. You were the first to use social media uh, outlets. You, you, you've done a lot of firsts. What's next? I'm doing the podcast space. You are too, by the way. But is there anything else you see coming down the line that will will make you adjust? Because you've always seemed to be ahead of the curve, Jenk. Thanks, Rick. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, what's next is we're going to dominate. Um, we're going to take over American media. And so right now, uh, people will say, oh, that's outrageous. Uh, you guys are much smaller than CNN and all these giants. Mm. Who do you think you are? <laughs> well, Rick, my whole life, people have been uh, telling me, who do you think you are? Well, I think I'm me. So what are you going to do about it? Um, so why don't you go and run your company and I'll run my company and I'll see your ass on the finish line. Um, so, and, and Rick, there's a reason why they say it to us because they're implicitly telling us you're not in the club. You're not in the club. How dare you think that you could match people in the club? Well, I dare, I dare. So what I'm going to do, uh, we're doing it now is we, we got a video partner program and we went from about five hosts to about 30 hosts. Mm -hmm. I'm just going to keep adding host after host after host. I'm going to take over the internet. Um, we're already top 10 in every platform except uh, cable uh, itself. But Facebook, YouTube, you, you, YouTube, you name it. You name a platform, we're on it. we got a 24-hour channel. Then we have our clips that are 5 to 15 minutes long that are all over every other platform. All you got to do is type in TYT anywhere you watch anything or listen to anything, and you'll get us. And then I'm going to dominate in live, um, and, and then we're going to start a platform. And we're going to do all these things. And, and we're kind of – we've been sitting in the top 10 
on all of these social media platforms for the last decade or so. And we're invisible to them because to them, the, the CNNs of the world, the idea that an outsider might win is absurd. They don't, they never even consider it. So they just skip right over us, right? We've been above MSNBC for so long. I can't see MSNBC in our rear view mirror when it comes to online video view counts. It's not even close, hmm. right? But CNN will skip right over us and go, Oh, how's MSNBC doing? Okay. Well, they're looking at the wrong place. Yeah. So, in but a even sense, if they watch it, the cable news ratings, just to share this with our listeners and viewers, on a good day, CNN or MSNBC are lucky if they reach 200,000 people in the 25 to 54 demo. So, 200,000 people, that's it in a country of 350 million, right? Rick, we reach 10 to 20 million people every single day at DYT. Okay, so call it 15. It fluctuates. 15 million people. <laughs> they, look, they, YouGov did a poll on our audience. 11% of the country watches us regularly. 1% gets you to 3 million and makes you number one on cable news. Yeah. We have 11%. Isn't that okay. interesting? So the mindset is, well, if it's on institutional television or terrestrial television or cable television, it must be real and everything else don't count. But that paradigm has already shifted and pretty soon it's going to be turned on its head and TYT is turning it on its head. And it's funny how in some ways I know it, I see it, but there's a lot of people out there who don't. And it must be frustrating. Oh, yeah, of course. But I, I, I've now gotten past that. It, so... Look, uh, just a couple of days ago, NBC announced that they might not do the ten original programming in the 10 o'clock primetime hour. That hour on NBC, as you well know, mm -hmm. Rick, was gold. They printed money in that hour. Half the homes in L.A. are bought by money they made in that hour. Um, and now they're giving up on it because it's underwater and they can't make money on it anymore. <laughs> That that is that means the death rattle of broadcast television has begun. Yeah. Uh, from here on out, they never recover. Uh, their costs only go up, and their revenue, most importantly, only goes down. I'm a businessman. They're screwed. Yeah. Um, and so, in the old days, it would greatly frustrate me that people wouldn't pay attention to numbers. One media reporter told me, "I don't understand internet numbers, so I'm not going to report it." I'm like, well, then you should be fired. Your job is to understand numbers as a media reporter. But now I'm not at all frustrated. We're almost like a Klingon warship sitting right in their backyard, but we have a cloaking device, so they can't see us. Um, and when we <laughs> uncloak or decloak, they're screwed. So, uh, no, no, great, great. No, don't worry about us. Keep going, brothers and sisters. I'll see you at the finish line. That's great, Jenk. I'm so happy for you. I really am. I think it's fantastic. Job well done. Uh, you deserve it. And, uh, and and I like the energy and I like the passion that you hope to be able to move forward. I mean, we, we were just getting started here. We just came up with this crazy idea that, you know, if Jen can do something uh, like that with TYT, why don't we do that with the 63 million Latinos who live in the United States and have never been given a voice either, which is why we're doing Agua Media. So um, uh, I, think, I think last time we talked, I said... Uh, you know, we want to be able to stand on your shoulders. We really do. I mean, you guys have done great work over there and you deserve the accolades. Thank you, Rick. You're wonderful for saying that. And look, the best part of my job 
is it happens with uh, almost all minorities, Latinos, Blacks, Palestinians, and Jews, uh, right? Because, mm-hmm. And Muslims. We stand up for each one of them when they're attacked, right? Uh, and and I remember this scene outside of a Chili's where an uh, African-American woman uh, that's in her 40s came out, saw me, started crying, and just hugged me and said, thank you for standing up for us. Um, that's worth all the money in the world. I wouldn't trade that for anything. Yeah. So, Rick, we're really lucky, you and I. We get to do what we love, fight for the people that we love, and uh, and 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 we get to live an interesting life. So th- and that's, thank that's, you for having me on, and I appreciate it. No, that, that's real value. That is real value. And uh, for those of you listening and you uh, heard Jenk's story, it's uh, great to be able to bring it to you. And thanks for uh, supporting us here at Agua Media. You know where you can find us as a podcast on Spotify, on Apple, or wherever you get your podcast. And make sure if you know another cholo out there, let them know what we're doing and share it with them at the same time, because that's really, really important for us. And if you happen to be watching us on that little thing called YouTube, and there's that little thing down there that says subscribe, hit it. And that way we'll kind of uh, keep in touch with each other. This is fantastic. Cenk, you're a good man. Really enjoyed the conversation. God bless you, my friend. Take care. Thank you, Rick. Much love. 